Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Rajesh Manwani from Julius Bear. In previous podcasts, we have covered blockchain and cryptocurrency essentials, some of their useful applications like smart contracts and tokens, and the characteristics of cryptocurrencies as investments. Now, in this final episode, I am rejoined by Dan Liebau of Lightbulb Capital. Hello, Dan. Hey. And Alex Rukshti of Julius Bear Next Generation Research Team. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me, Rajesh. Fantastic. Now let us move from the world of classical cryptocurrencies to three key aspects that could be very important determinants of the growth of blockchain technologies in the long run. Regulations is an obvious one. Also relevant is central bank-issued digital currencies and how they could evolve. But first, let's start with the one area of blockchain with which we left off the last podcast with. Decentralized finance or DeFi. DeFi refers to a vast number of financial applications that use cryptocurrency and blockchain technology to manage financial transactions. Dan, what can you tell us about the world of DeFi and how it operates? Okay, so DeFi is basically smart contract-based finance. And what that means is that all the traditional functions that we know from the world of finance, whether it's borrowing and lending or trading or even asset management, and lately now even insurance. Insurance as well as well, basically moves from a traditional intermediary type institution into a smart contract. And that is so important to watch because basically smart contracts can operate at a level of a cost-income ratio that banks and other intermediaries can only dream of, right? So how low does this go? So I don't know, what is it in the traditional world, anything between 40 and 80%, right? depending on the institution? But um, apart from the transaction costs that we uh, need to pay for the execution of these smart contracts, there's very little other costs once this thing is developed, right? So obviously you have a little bit of effort in the beginning to set it all up, but then it's just the transaction costs that user will have to pay. I think most of the activity in DeFi right now is happening on the Ethereum blockchain, but we can see that it's also expanding to other ecosystems in the more recent past. So what that means is that interoperability between different ecosystems will become even more important, right? If you think about each decentralized smart contract platform as a country, like a sovereign, then obviously you want trade in between those platforms, right? Right. So there seem to be a a myriad of possibilities with DeFi opening up. Alex, which DeFi use cases are you most excited by and why? The first thing you just uh, alluded to, what's extremely interesting about DeFi is just the the myriad of applications from from lending to borrowing, stable coins, insurance, derivatives, uh, what have you. So even though we might have like one area that we find extremely fascinating, just because the space is so much developing all the time and in so many ways, there might be a completely different take on that question just in a couple of months down the road. Currently, what we find most interesting is in the decentralized exchange space. 
Because currently, if you, if you look at how the exchange market operates, it's settlement T plus three, so three days just to get settlement done in a smart contract. You have that in an instant. And also from a, from a transparency point of view, like if, if all the transactions are there in the blockchain, you, you see who paid how much for what at one point in time, the, you don't really have dark pools anymore. So it might lead to more transparency in the market. So currently, the decentralized exchanges, that's an extremely interesting aspect. But just because so much moves in that space at such a brisk speed, that question might have a very different answer just in a couple of months down the road. Well, that's exciting. But may I clarify, decentralized exchanges of what kind of securities? Equities and fixed income as well. Like it, it doesn't really have to be just a, a single asset class. What we very much would state, uh, decentralized exchanges, so on uh, digital, digital goods, so equities, fixed income, so forth, as soon as you move away from the, the purely digital to the physical stuff, so on uh, real estate transaction things or like a tokenization of, of physical cars and those things, as soon as you move into the physical world, I think there's uh, much less potential there and it's going to take much longer. So very straightforward answer, uh, equities, fixed income mainly, but also uh, similar uh, digital focused services goods. Okay, got it. And then what are you most excited about this wide world of DeFi? So one thing that, just to complement a little bit on what Alex said, right, is the pace of change is so incredibly fast, right? And we might not have dark pools, but then we might have them again because eventually there's some protocol that develops some privacy-preserving type of decentralized exchange. So it's really something that you have to follow on a daily basis to keep up to speed with all of the different developments. I think the biggest issue that I kind of want to throw in the room here is that right now, decentralized finance doesn't really have a natural buyer of these financial services. What I mean by that is that in a normal traditional space, you have somebody who is looking for a return and somebody who needs financing on the other side. So the person who is looking for the return will basically be a speculator of sorts and bet on different opportunities while there's uh, the other side of the market that really wants to do something productive, right? They want to take out a loan or, or want to get some financing to produce something. So that's not really happening. So in the DeFi space right now, we just have one speculator and another speculator. So that I think is a little bit unhealthy, but hopefully that's just uh, teething issues. And then as we go, we will see a fully developed market. That's fascinating. Now let's move on from that to another topical issue in the world of blockchain, and that is central bank digital currencies or CBDCs for short. This is where the issuer of the digital currency is the central bank of a country. What I was stunned by is that according to the Bank of International Settlements, there are at least 80 central banks around the world which are looking at digital currencies. Now, looking at doesn't mean they will all have them, but certainly interesting. And one of the most publicized ones, of course, is the Digital Yuan project from China. After having done their successful pilots, it's now aimed to have the currency in use in time for the 2022 Winter Olympics. Now, this is both interesting and a little bit ironic because central banks represent the epitome of centralization. What's your take on CBDCs, Dan? So, I like your last sentence, actually. I do think that they're not decentralized, right? 
because the name already contains it as central bank digital currencies. So I do have a bunch of concerns about these central bank digital currencies. The first one is one of privacy. So if you think about a cash note today, you can spend it without anyone knowing, right? You could take a $10 bill and go down to 7-Eleven and buy a Snickers bar. And nobody knows that you have bought a Snickers bar. You can buy many Snickers bar and live a very unhealthy life and nobody will notice, right? So that will change with these central bank digital currencies because basically everything will be recorded. Now, it's a bit of a leap of faith to expect of governments that they will implement a privacy feature, which technically, by the way, is possible, but I doubt it. So that's one big concern. The second big concern is we then will have programmable money, right? What can you do with programmable money? Well, you can add an expiration date. And there's already something happening in China right now where just before one of these big e-commerce sales days um, to test this currency, people are being given vouchers to spend the digital one and those vouchers expire at a certain date. So it's not something that I'm just being paranoid about. It's actually really happening. Offer open till stocks last. Imagine that, right? Imagine if that applies to your bank account. A bit scary. What I also want to say is that it's not just another cryptocurrency, right? It's fundamentally different. And I really would question whether there will be wide integration between central bank digital currencies and cryptocurrencies as we know them today. Now, you could argue, well, China has already started with that. There's the BSN network and a whole initiative around how to use public blockchains to become the payment rails that China can use perhaps as a bit of a backup plan if they are not on SWIFT anymore. But at the same time, you know, it's so fundamentally different that I think there's a good reason for me to believe that cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currencies will be very different and separated in the future. So in true crypto enthusiast fashion, you don't seem to be a big fan. What's your take, Alex? Very high conviction that they're going to come. So... Uh, you mentioned just before, 80 central banks around the world are looking into the space, and a lot of them are quite far into the road of actually implementing a solution. So you mentioned China, which is quite far ahead, but there's also the uh, Swedish e-krona, there's the Bahamas sand dollar, and there are many more projects uh, along the way. We really feel that central bank digital currencies are the future of money in a sort of way. And it's going to be up to the countries individually to define what sort of central bank digital currency they want. Because you can have on the one hand one that's extremely capable of doing a lot of things, or you can have one that is much less intrusive. So you can have one, a very mild wholesale CBDC that's basically not much different from how the system works today, where just a central bank issues CBTC to banks and then those banks distribute it to, to people, which is not much different how, how money works now. Or you could have retail CBDC that's going to really upend the financial system where you basically don't need retail banks anymore because people will just hold their wallets with the central bank. And at the same time, it allows for that programmable money, which means that you can have an expiration date on money. It means you can possibly impose negative yields on cash, which is something you just can't do right now. 
but it also means a, a central bank might issue a universal basic income directly to, to wallet holders. So it's going to be a, a long discussion that people in countries around the world are going to have. What sort of CBDC do we want? Do we want one that is extremely capable of, of doing a lot of things like issuing universal basic income or having negative yields? Or do we want one that just uh, looks at how do we get a bit more efficiency out of the current financial system that we have? Having spoken about central banks, let's look at the broader regulatory position on blockchain-related technologies. One of the things that makes banks more safer, but also slower, is regulation. Alex, how would you characterize the current regulatory position on things like account opening, know your client, and other related aspects? Well, the Wild West days of crypto are slowly but surely coming to an end. So, uh, say goodbye to the vision of anonymous wealth and crypto. So, so to speak, if you look at the exchanges right now, the amount of KYC, know your client, as well as AML, uh, anti-money laundering and, and stuff, it, it just gets more and more and more and they're slowly morphing into just uh, regular players like like banks in that regard. Like there, There's even now rumors out that the US is going to demand to get uh, detailed information on any transaction in Bitcoin that is worth more than $10,000 per day. So yeah, it, it's clearly moving into the space that, that governments say we don't want a complete anonymous financial system because that would just uh, leave the doors open for all those illicit activities. So say goodbye to the world of anonymous crypto going forward. And then what's your view? How is this changing? Are regulations going to become more supportive? Well, depends a little bit on the country, but I think that all the while regulators have been trying to look into the cryptocurrency space and FINMA, the Swiss regulator itself, was one of the first ones to come up with a categorization for different token types. And it also had the first two fully licensed crypto banks. That's right. That's right. So I don't like it when people say, oh, yeah, but regulators are always behind. And they're supposed to be a little bit behind, right? They're not paid to be innovative. They're paid to safe keep our environment, right? It's different. But um, what I would say is that the number of regulators that are enabling experimentation. So here in Singapore, for example, I think just last week they announced that they now have a sandbox where startups can actually experiment with their version of the CBDC. So that's quite forward-looking in my mind. I've also read a consultation paper from MAS that basically outlines what they call the Omnibus Act. And the Omnibus Act is basically an act to harmonize whatever is regulated under the Securities and Futures Act today and to apply all of the similar sort of roles that we have under the CMS regime today to service providers in the cryptocurrency space. So if you're in the future, if you're an asset manager and you manage a crypto fund, there'll be a license type that you have to apply for. So I think lots of activity, actually. Now, aside from regulations, the massive tectonic force of change in the world of finance is also coming from ESG which is environmental, social, and governance considerations. Now, Bitcoin is seen to be very wasteful on the energy consumption part. This has to be an important topic for assessment, right, Alex? Yeah, it's very much relevant. And 
Just to give a, a recent interesting example, El Salvador uh, is the, the first country that decides that they want to adopt uh, Bitcoin as, their, as one of their legal currencies. And they asked the World Bank to, to help them with setting it up. And the World Bank said, no, we, we don't want to do that. And the big reason they noted for it is that it's just a, a very energy inefficient system. And there have been some push to get Bitcoin to, to become a bit more cleaner, as in get the miners to use renewable energies and the thought but but even even in in that sort of scenario where everything would be done from the computational side with renewable energies we shouldn't forget that just because electricity comes from a solar panel doesn't mean it's completely carbon neutral because just to produce that uh, that solar panel you have to mine silicon then you have to apply Siemens processes to be to create polycarbon silicon and then you have to transport those panels so all those aspects around renewable energies just means that even if it completely switched to renewables it, it wouldn't be like completely energy neutral but what it highlights is something we addressed in the last episode of this podcast that uh, Dan and I were pretty much in agreement upon that other consensus mechanisms like proof of stake and others are the way forward in the crypto space just because mining and proof of work is such an energy inefficient solution. Yep, yep very interesting. Dan and you study both ESG as well as blockchain. So where do you land on this debate? So just building on what Alex was saying, right? Uh, very interesting. I just want to say that even if we manage to get Bitcoin to be fully carbon neutral, then the waste of energy is still a problem, right? Because that clean energy that was produced could be used for something that provides more utility to mankind rather than the system that maybe conceptually is very interesting, but hasn't got as much traction as to justify that sort of energy consumption. I think E, S, and G are extremely important in this context. And um, that's why it's also one of my next research papers. So you think about E, basically companies now have to report on the CO2 emissions of their entire supply chain. So if they use something like a decentralized smart contract platform, they will also have to report it for that platform, right? And um, I think there's TCFD reporting in place to, to make sure they have to absolutely do that. So if you're a company, you can basically not use a proof-of-work-based platform today. Everyone talks about E, but S and G are not less important. Yeah? And um, when we think about social factors, then one thing that Alex also mentioned, I think, in our last episode is inequality. So how can you think about inequality? Basically, you could calculate something like the Gini coefficient amongst all of the wallet holders in a particular ecosystem to understand the distribution of wealth. Right? So these are some of the things that we will be looking at. And then finally, G is also an interesting one. Yeah? So if we assume that these decentralized smart contract platforms are really more like sovereigns and not like companies, then obviously governance is like super critical. And um, in order to get a, an understanding of the quality of the governance, we would look at things like what sort of decision-making structures are there really in place? And of course, we also look at the consensus algorithms that we discussed um, at length in the previous sessions. So I think there's also the whole 
transparency aspect to ESG. So how do you make sure that, you know, you get the information out? And I think my last paper is really around minimum disclosure requirements for these token issuers. So that's also governance related, if you like. Yeah. So the E is currently a big problem, but being worked at with a lot of fervor. But you make a good point that it's also the S and G aspects, which are also equally relevant. Now, I want to change gears slightly. And there's an age-old saying, during a gold rush, sell shovels. This refers to the fact that in the gold rush in the US, not too many people found gold, but many others did very well selling shovels and other things that the gold seekers needed. I am not making a one-is-to-one comparison between the two. But Alex, would be great to understand, outside of the narrower lens we've taken, what are the other associated parts of the value chain, particularly those which are becoming investable? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting example that you mentioned. So let me just quickly look at the value chain. So if you ask yourself from the complete start to the end, so at, at first you have the hardware manufacturers that produce the, the mining equipment, then you, you have the mining operators themselves, then you have the, the, the crypto exchanges where then the, the transactions take place. Then you have some some just general ecosystem companies and then you you have like the, the, the big players, the IBM, the Facebook that have done quite a extensive investments in, in the blockchain space. And so right now, the, who are the shovel sellers and, and, and who are the, the miners? And there we, we really see the analogy uh, quite well. So for the mining operators, we, we don't really have a, a good outlook on them because for them, the their earnings are going to be extremely volatile because they're going to be, to a very large extent, just a function of the price of Bitcoin or of other coins that, that are mining. So it's going to be an extremely volatile endeavor. It's going to be done with massive capital expenditures on their part. And at the same time, there's also a huge risk of regulation just coming in. Like you, you saw it in China, a couple of weeks back where the government just said mining in the inner mongolia region is just not going to happen from here on forward and so there's a, there's a big business dis- disruption risk currently going on uh, the probably the the analogy on who are the shovel sellers right now it's the exchanges at, at the moment like the the fees that they are currently charging their clients are extremely high if you compare it with uh, the general fixed income market, for example. So there's an interesting piece of research we got from numbers that say average earnings that the exchanges make on transactions is roughly 0.5% in that sort of range. And if the general FX market was that inefficient, then banks would be earning roughly $32 $32 billion every single day just from FX exchanges. And so there the, the question is like, how long are those margins to be able to sustain at such high levels? When are they going to go down? Yeah, very interesting question. Now, I'd like to ask both of you one final wrap-up question. We've been through a good journey these last three podcasts. We've considered different aspects, the technology, the benefits, the risks, regulations, environment, FOMO, all the hype, etc. If you both look out five years from now, ignore the short-term noise, but five years from now, 
what share of our financial activities, your mine, for example, payments, investment transactions, custody, real estate ownership, do you think will be facilitated by a blockchain or a closely related technology? I believe that with technology and innovation, humans are very bad in estimating because we always estimate in a linear fashion, right? If it took like five years last time around, it might be taking the same amount next, next time around. But technology's acceleration of pace is a little bit more exponential than that. So I think it's 80%. Wow. Yeah. 80% of our financial activities will in some form be facilitated on a blockchain. Wow. What about you, Alex? Yeah, that's a huge number. And I completely see Dan's point. We tend to really underestimate growth and change in, in the medium run. And I'm going to go with 40%. So I'm, I'm still with a, a very high exponential growth curve, but not, not as high as stands. What I'd like to differentiate here is a bit that uh, in the space where we're talking about things in the financial world that are completely digital. So equity transactions and just pay cross-border payments and those sorts of aspects. There I'd go up as far as 70, 80%. So I'm, I'm with you on, on, there on, on that one, Dan. Where I think it's going to take a quite bit longer than that is on the aspect where the financial world isn't just digital, but is also physical. So as, as soon as you're talking about asset tokenization, when it goes to will we be able to get real estate on, on the blockchain? Do we get like mortgages and might be, do we get like a, a market where all timer cars are going to be traded well on that market and other very illiquid things that are present in the physical world? So on, on those aspects, we believe it's going to be taking quite a longer time to maybe we're going to be zero to 10% there in, in five years in that aspect. And so overall, on a, on a weighted average sort of thing, we, we think we're going to see 40% of the financial world working in uh, a blockchain or related future technology in five years down the road. So also very optimistic on our side. Fantastic. Thanks to both of you for being such great sports and sticking your necks out. I just wanted to ask the number, not for the exactness of the number, but to get an order of magnitude and whether it's 40 or 80 or even slightly less than 40, I think those are considerable numbers that give us a lot of context. Thank you, Dan and Alex, for your tremendous insights. Ladies and gentlemen, we are drawing to the conclusion of this podcast. In summary, the world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies has moved very fast over the past 12 years and continues to evolve rapidly. We spoke about timestamping everything we say here. There are no doubt many hurdles yet to be crossed. In particular, cryptocurrencies, while helpful, are likely not going to be the future of data and money. However, as Dan and Alex both agreed, decentralized finance, or DeFi, is different. With its ability to do things faster and better across a variety of use cases, particularly those where there is already digitalization happening, DeFi has a lot of potential to improve finance. It's not an easy field to get our heads around, and for sure, some parts of it can be very, very risky. We are just reading about one of the first proponents of this, Mark Cuban, also having a lot of money on one of the DeFi projects. Nevertheless, it is important that we challenge ourselves by going beyond the somewhat simplistic, extreme statements on either end of the debate. Either it's a Ponzi scheme or it'll change the way the world operates and the way we know it. 
and that we start learning more about it, which parts could be useful and assess how it could evolve further. We truly hope that these podcasts have helped you with some exposure and motivation to make a start. Thank you for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.